Hello and welcome to Curator Chats. My name is Billy Wallwinkle. I'm an assistant curator and oral historian for the Detroit Historical Society. And I'm also a graduate student in Wayne State's public history program. I get asked a lot, what exactly is public history? And I had that same question myself when I was approached about the program. And if you don't know what public history is, that's perfectly fine. That's what we're here for. Each episode, I'm going to be talking to a different public history practitioner about their work in the city Detroit. Journalists, anthropologists, historians, museum educators, artists, educators. There are so many great people doing public history work that don't really consider themselves public historians, but their work counts nonetheless. I want each episode to offer a different avenue for people who want to get into this work. There are so many amazing opportunities out there for future public historians, and if one of these episodes can provide inspiration to the next generation mission accomplished thank you all for joining me i hope you enjoy these really fantastic chats because they are my favorite people their work is amazing and i hope you enjoy yourselves as much as i got to in this episode, I sit down for a chat with journalist and historian Tim Kiska. Tim is a writer, editor, professor, and avid podcaster. We talk about his experiences writing not only the first drafts of history, but the second, his decision to leap into podcasting to share the history of Detroit, and if there's really a difference between a historian and a public historian. Here's my chat with Tim. Thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me today, Tim. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Oh, I always love talking with you. I want to chat with you. I want to start off with writing. So you were a journalist in the city for a very long time. Uh, you started at the, the Free Press in the 19, in 1970 before moving to the news. Was there always a history angle to the work that you were doing? Or was that kind of a later development for you? The stuff that I covered was hard news for the most part. Uh, I, I covered uh, Wayne County Circuit Court, Wayne County Board of Commissioners. I covered Down River, covered automotive, uh, U.S. District Court, federal court. So a lot of, you know, hard news. Brought. And then I went to the news in 87, three years as a gossip columnist, which was by far the, the worst three years of my professional life. It was god awful. And then uh, then I covered, ended up covering TV for the last piece at the Detroit News. So it, it's, but it was almost always news related. In other words, hard news. So, but backing into your question, I've always been just utterly fascinated by the history. I've always just been deeply interested in the history field, you know, even when I was a reporter. So that's sort of, a, the two were kind of mixed. And I think there's a classic line, I can't remember who came up with it, that reporting is the first draft of history. And I think that's true. The two crafts are, are actually fairly similar. You're just working with slightly different materials. And when you're reporting and writing on the city, do you do you feel an ex, like an extra connection because you grew up here in the city on the east side? No question about it. Yes, you know, totally. Particularly the, the east side. You know, I mean, it's, it's interesting who my longest term friends are, are people like Bill McGraw, who grew up two parishes north and west. Joe LaPointe, who grew up one parish south of me. Terry Gallagher, also one, one south also. But, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I always felt totally attached. Uh, and this would have been, like I said, let me precise time frame, 1977. Coleman Young is running. 
for re-election. And I ended up covering, uh, you know, keeping an eye on almost everything that was going on in 77. And I was just utterly fascinated. I would go to candidates nights every night of the week, you know, and talk to people that had been around for a while. I just couldn't get enough of the stories, soaking it all up. That's sort of the, for whatever reason, is the way my brain is built. I love the fact that you said stories there, because when I was working on the 67 project, one, one of my one of my favorite moments that happened during the whole, whole shebang was I went to a storytelling night at mm-hmm. the U of M building on Woodward there. And it had, uh, it was a moderated chat with four people who grew up in the city during 67. And you were one of them. Okay, I don't and okay. and it was uh four people up there. It was you, uh, another a white woman, a black woman, and an older uh, black man. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I live in the realm of storytelling with oral histories and doing that, especially when I was in the heart of 67. But uh, the, the black gentleman said, oh, growing up in Detroit during that time was great. We we all got along. I had white friends, whole whole nine yards. The, the black woman said the same thing. The white woman said the same thing. And you are sitting on that stage incredulous, looking at them like, who are you people? And you, you, you asked them, you're like, wait, wh- where did you guys grow up? Are you West Siders or East Siders? Right. And they all said West Sider. You know, oh, that makes more sense now. <laughs> like I'm from the east side, and I did not live in that Detroit. Well, you know, and and it, it just broke my heart at the time. But I lived not too far from Mac and Alter, and two blocks up from where I lived on Mac Avenue, there was something called Jackson Junior High School, which was integrated, and it was just not good. I mean, it was just, and I, I think a lot of the African American students had to walk a consider. I think there was some kind of integration move on the part of the school board, and so they made they had these African American students walk or bus or whatever would have been about a mile maybe even more and and into this totally strange white neighborhood and for good reason I'm thinking I don't think the black students the African-American students particularly wanted to be there and the white students I don't think were greeting them with any kind of open arms and it was just there was tension you know not totally across the board I'm, I'm sure that you know if somebody hears this they're going to go say wait I went to Jackson everything was hunky-dory but no it was just I think fear and there was some suspicion the whole thing was heartbreaking you know, you know, in so many different ways. And, and you could see that playing out on stage. For me, that moment just exemplified why as, why as many perspectives as possible need to be collected. Because when you have when you have three out of four, it's really important to find the fourth. Yeah. And, and I would love, you know, I don't know how you do this. Maybe there's a way of doing this. To, I would just love to be able to interview some African-American students who were at, Grand, at Jackson Junior High School when I, you know, in, in 65, 66, 67. What was it like from their perspective, you know? And because and, I was getting the white guy's perspective from my neighborhood. As you're looking back, drawing from your experiences and in, in living in the city and covering the mayor's race, after that race is when you start thinking more intently about forays into the history field? Well, you know, I'd always been interested in it. I started off as a Wayne State uh, undergrad in, in 1970. Uh, it was the history classes that I liked the best. Uh, there was a guy named Safety who's long since left, uh, who taught, taught, this was not my field at all, ancient history, but I was so blown away by this guy's passion. I might have had in many, many, many years at Wayne State, I probably had two lousy history professors. All the rest of them were just awesome, just awesome. You know, it, it sort of grew organically, you know, in a lot of different ways because I was, okay, on the ground floor reporting. And then I was, you know, my own leisure time, I was reading history books just because that's what I like to do. I remember being on a panel with 
with, I can't remember, one, some best-selling author, somebody who sent, sent millions, I can't remember her name, off the top of my head. This is the, many years later. And and her, her little talk to the group was, you know, people keep on saying, well, what kind of, I want to I want to write a book. What kind of book should I, you know, I want maybe romances or something. And she said, uh, go to your bookshelf, take a look at what's on your bookshelf. That's the area you want to get into. There was another line I read. It was B.B. King talking to one of the ZZ, the ZZ Top guitarists who was just starting out. They were talking and B.B. King said, you know, the, the ZZ Top guy wasn't sure where he wanted to go with his guitar playing. And B.B. King says to him, you know, write what you like to hear or, you know, play what you like to hear. Well, I think that's kind of a stumbling way of saying in terms of history, I just like reading history books. And I like reading history. It just engaged me. I got enthralled. And so, you know, at a certain point, I just thought, I love reading history. Why don't I get into it? You know, take a class where there's sort of an organized, structured way of studying something. And I just fell in love with it even more. Yeah. If you want to write something, it's a commitment and you're going to need to enjoy the process or at least enjoy the content. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. You know, you can almost, I don't know if you can tell, but you know, somebody who's so enthralled with, with what they're writing about, that it's quite clear that they, they, they were happy to go to that extra mile, look at that extra file, do that extra trip, you know, uh, you know, get the research done. So yeah, the commitment is all it's, it's, I, I would have to caution listeners that that is also a double-edged sword because sometimes if they're too passionate, writers are too passionate, it will turn into a brick and you're like, oh, I don't need to know the details of this person's shirt in this moment or something like that well yeah it can turn into that but it's one of these things where if you're interested in it you're going to make it interesting for somebody else so yeah it could be a brick but you know you find these little details you know when you keep on doing research and it, i don't i think it's not a brick so much as uh you know there you never know when some quote some factoid all of a sudden fits in perfectly that's when you kind of go hallelujah this is this is great so when you went back to grad school you went to wayne right was the work you were working on uh, what became your first couple of books or were uh, you just on a totally different track? Uh, no, it, you know, it was roughly the same thing. I mean, when I started out, uh, I had a startling raving 2.8 as an undergrad. So when I when I got admitted to the history school, it was under uh, double secret probation, whatever it was. And it, actually it was a, a class in revolutionary Napoleonic era France. And then I figured nobody's writing about TV, particularly local TV, even though this is a big cultural force in our society. So I, and I was already covering local TV for the Detroit news when I was doing this. And uh, I'd always been, had this historical bent. So I, you know, somebody had mentioned the general manager for channel seven in the fifties. I'd go back and look them up, find out everything I could about them. And eventually I turned that into my dissertation, which eventually got turned into a book for Wayne state press. That's sort of how that got done. So I went down that path, but only, you know, toward the end when I was starting to develop the dissertation. And that, by the way, presented some unique challenges. One of them is that a lot of those old tapes, there's no such, they're gone. If they ever, people, they just didn't save those tapes. So whatever I got, traditional archival method wasn't, wasn't always the best way to go because a lot of these folks, they didn't leave stuff behind, kind of like the way, you know, Frank Murphy would leave his papers behind. Uh, why don't I start working for something where I know what the, where the resources are, something I'm interested in. So that's how that got done. And those projects are like sometimes even more rewarding than the stuff that you know you can find. If you can put together a book from the sources that no one else can find. Right. 
That's a great day. It is a great day, you know, an absolutely great day, you know, and just it's oddball stuff. I mean, it was uh, was going through George Perot's stuff and this guy saved everything, including he's a very young man. They used to have something called dance cards. I think the way this worked, because this is way beyond before my time, that somebody wanted to dance with you. They would fill out a card and you would, and, and he saved all those dance cards from like 1905 or something like that. I mean, it was just, you know, and I was just so thrilled or another one. I was, I was doing a piece uh, on a guy named Asap Gabrilovich, who was the conductor of the Detroit Symphony between 1918 and about 30. He also kept a ton of stuff. And one of them that just, it was like, I was, my mind was blown and I was like on another on a cloud for a week. He was going to pro- uh, conduct this particular Bach symphony, uh, but it was the notes, his own handwritten notes to himself and how he was going to approach this. And I thought, damn, this is amazing. I mean, this is his own handwriting right there. You're right. It's just, a, it's a great day when you're finding this stuff. So when you wrapped up, uh, wrapped up your dissertation and prepared to release the book, and that's your, so that's your first uh, book from, from Soupy to Nuts, right? Well, uh, that was, you know, that would have been my second. I did another one in 89 called Detroit's Powers and Personalities. Oh yeah, you're right. That was mine. And then, then I did that one. That would have been the second, Soupy to Nuts would have been the second one. And a lot of the notes that I had for Soupy to Nuts got used in the Wayne State book, uh, Newscast for the Masses. And then I did a fourth, which is an Arcadia book with Ed Golick, once again, using a lot of the material that I've been dredging up over the years. So I want to I talk to you about writing. Uh, like for people who want to get into the field, there's a wide range of writing styles kind of in the history field. Sure. What audience do you write for? Like, do you try to write for academics and you for the popular audience? Who, who are you looking to? You know, that's a great Great question. Well, let's put it this way. Um, I did the, the George Perot piece that just got published this fall in the Michigan Historical Review. And I looked at the historical review closely and I figured, I don't know if you'd call it a writing style, but I got where they were coming from. And so I sort of tailored it to that audience, even though it was my own style. Uh, if I'm writing for the free press, you know, or a lot, a, a lot of the other stuff, it's not, you've got me stumped here a little bit because I just think, okay, I've got to tell the story. And I, I'm thinking, what's the best way to tell this story uh, succinctly and in the, in the most engaging fashion I can? And so I'm not thinking so much about a certain audience as, okay, how can I tell this story? Am I getting it right? It's, it's kind of drilled in you when you're in school to use as large a vocabulary as possible, to have complex sentences, vary your sentence structure and all that stuff. I was really, just, I want to know in practice, how, how often is that used? Well, if you're writing, I did one other paper, which is more of a journalism research piece for something called the Newspaper Research Journal. And for them, I really did get into the academic patois for them because that's what they did. Michigan Historical Review is a little bit looser than that. And I don't know how much they push, you know, write, you know, longer words, uh, more complex sentences. I didn't get that much pressure from my folks at all. In fact, they thought it was sort of refreshing. I mean, not that you're going to be writing like Hunter Thompson or anything like that. They kind of thought it was refreshing to have simple declarative sentences that explain what what, what you found out. Frankly, I didn't feel that much pressure to write in a, in a heavy academic way. But that said, if I were going to be, you know, like I said, when I was doing this piece for the newspaper research journal, I was always constantly thinking when I was writing, how do they handle this stuff? And you sort of have to follow their template. But 
you know, I got to tell you, it's not been a big issue for me necessarily. You just adapt. I do this podcast. Writing for a podcast is totally different in so many ways in that I just was just listening to one that we did last night. It's the first draft. And there's this one section that goes on and on and on. I'm probably going to cut it by two thirds, but it worked perfectly in print, the length, but it just went on too damn long where people would just fall asleep if they kept on listening to this stuff. So it's, you got to sort of, you know, what's, what's the tool for what you're trying to accomplish? Let's put it that way. Want to know more about Detroit's history, but you don't know where to start? Don't worry, I got you covered. Head on down to the Detroit Historical Museum and the Dawson Great Lakes Museum to learn all there is to know about the city, where it's been, where it is, and you might even get some hints on where it's going. You can start your trip today at DetroitHistorical.org. Don't pass it up. Detroit starts here. Interested in exploring a career in history but don't know where to start? It's time for you to go visit Wayne State University, a premier research university in the heart of Detroit. Wayne is home to historians ready to introduce to you what history, public history, and digital humanities has to offer. Check out their work today on Twitter at History at Wayne. Love Detroit history but always on the move? Don't worry, got you covered. Check out the Detroit History Podcast today. Each episode will take you to a moment of Detroit's rich, fascinating, controversial, sometimes crazy, but always amazing history. Hosted by journalist and historian Tim Kiska, the Detroit History Podcast is for lovers of Detroit history anywhere and at any time. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So you brought up the podcast, and I really would love to spend uh, a lot of time talking with you about it. When did you first get the inkling or the itch to do a podcast? I mean, I've been sort of aware, you know, of Serial when it came out. That was pretty good. Uh, very good, as a matter of fact. But then um, I heard something called the Crime Town that's done by this outfit out of uh, out of Brooklyn. This particular one was about organized crime in Providence, Rhode Island. And I just thought, wow, this is something else because they're telling this story. It's obvious that they did a lot of homework and done a lot of research before they put this thing together. And I thought, what a great genre. What a great way of telling history. And and that's when I said, well, I, I can't, I wish I, I should have written down exactly when all this came to me, but there was sort of, I don't know if there was a eureka moment where I say, well, why don't I just do one on the thing that I like to learn more, more write about most, which is Detroit history. So I said, let's keep it simple. Detroit history podcast, you know, got the, got the rights to it. Uh, just started putting these things together a little bit rough at first. Uh, and I could tell a big difference between the early ones that I did and the ones I'm doing now, but I just kept on, just kept at it, you know, every step of the way. Uh, my son, who's a really good editor and also I needed somebody on that project who was a lot younger than I am I needed somebody who was uh, in their 20s which my son was or is who's got that more of that frame of reference so I needed that somebody who's got a 20 some 20 somethings sense of pace if I'm yakking too long he's going to be the one that can say oh, look we need to, we need to cut a minute out of this or something like that so I just went ahead and did it it seems to have taken off <laughs> there were so many things that you just touched on that resonated with me when we were working on our podcast at the society untold detroit check it out one of my one of the members of the podcast team isn't a big history buff and we right. made sure that she was in every writing meeting we had right. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Yep, because if we bored her, we knew we had to change it up. Oh, absolutely. And and what we did, okay, the one that I'm working on right now, literally. And so Bob Kosky, who works as the auto engineer, audio engineer on this thing, he, he drove over. He, he lives about, we were driving around the east side, 11 o'clock at night, listening to this thing, you know, through the car speakers. And that's when I'm saying, oh, man, this part's got to be cut by two thirds, that sort of thing. So we try to put ourselves in the environment that people are listening in, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes total sense. I want to go back to what you said in the beginning about the beginning of the podcast what was rough about it a couple things uh the uh the pace i think needed to be a little bit faster i'm now you know when you're doing the script when i do the script and by the way that's routinely five to seven drafts of a script and i can tell physically you know because on the left hand side it's external audio from sound effects to the sound of somebody being interviewed to me and if i see something that's just long on the right hand side of the paper i know i'm talking too long so we we work on that initially I was doing the editing myself and and it was okay but it was it was a learning curve and I was on it not easy at first and and I think just the pacing sucked I was letting people talk too long and that sort of thing and I, I sort of learned early on you need to mix it up mix you know mix it up but have me talk for a minute and then a, a second a few seconds and somebody else talks for a few seconds so the whole thing is constantly keeps moving my early ones I don't think did that um, well enough but I, I'm, I'm I'm becoming more and more conscious of it this time goes on. We, we were talking about writing style earlier, and one of the one of the biggest learning curves that I was on when we did the podcast was writing for it. Right. We we were working with a producer who would just yell at me all the time, like, "Do yeah. you ever say that word out loud? Like, have you ever spoken that word?" <laughs> I love Seth to death, but was that Seth? God, it was Seth. <laughs> <laughs> I love them, but you know, whatever. But yeah, well, that, that's the other thing, which is why when I'm writing this thing, it's almost like there's a little bit less difference, uh, distance between my brain and my fingers when I'm writing for the podcast. I'm thinking, okay, how would I say this just talking to you? You know, and uh, and I'm, I'm, the more I practice, the more I'm at this, the better I get at this. And uh, you know, I'm just making it sound natural. It sounds like something I'd say. Well, initially, I, I wasn't as adept at that, but now I've got a lot more confidence about it, you know, and, and uh, confidence in it. And and as you know, when you're doing a podcast, the whole idea is not, it's 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 a, almost a conversation. You're not talking at anybody. This is not, you know, Walter Cronkite Murrow narrating World War II. This is something a little bit different. And by the way, you mentioned, I guess I'm going to contradict myself. When you're talking about the audiences, I'm always thinking about somebody who's driving down Mac Avenue on the east side and they're listening to this thing. I, I try to think of that as the audience. That's about as far as that goes, though. So when you when you first started, what were some of the things that you wanted the podcast to touch on? And was it always going to be episodic? Did you ever think about doing like kind of longer stories? Well, I was thinking about that. In fact, we may do that. I think my next move is going to be coming up with something that would be nationally oriented, some kind of historical event, and and doing a series of like maybe five or six of them, kind of the way that Crime Town does its stuff. Uh, I'm thinking about that. Uh, I just need to get through season four first, which is what I'm working on right now. But it was always episodic. Starting out, there were certain things I wanted to get into. One was Coleman Young in 1952. I uh, was a young labor organizer. Got hauled before one of the McCarthy committees. Not not Joe McCarthy personally, but one of the other related committees. And and, and that he chewed these guys out left and right, and it became such a spectacle that it ended up becoming a uh, somebody turned it into a vinyl record, and it got sold underground in African American record shops all over the place. And I looked for 15 years trying to get a copy of that record. I always had the uh, had the 
uh, the transcript, which took a while enough. Uh, but then finally, I got got the tape from a guy named the late Bob Burke, and, and that's when you can really hear what he sounded like, what what guts he had to go at these guys. So I uh, I, I had to do that one just because I've spent all these years trying to find. It. I don't think anybody else had heard the tape too. So I wanted to put this on there. Uh, you know, and there were some other ones. Uh, Asaf Gerolovich. I'd already spent a bunch of time researching and done a whole chapter on a book that I'm working on about him. So I was just able to take the notes. I'll write a script around it. Uh, interviewed uh, somebody from the symphony who knew this guy's history. And the other one, I'd spent a lot, many, many, many months researching the 1943 Detroit riot. And so I did that one. Um, I got, I'd found a, a memo that Thurgood Marshall, who was a young NAACP attorney at the time, he came to Detroit as this happened to do a report. And I got a copy of the report and I had Dennis Archer read from the report. Those early ones were sort of guided by, you know, stuff that I'd already researched. And then there was other stuff that I was just sort of curious about. I wanted to mix things up, you know, some of the lighter stuff, some of the, uh, occasionally we'll do a true crime one, which seems to be big these days. So, and we're working on the fourth season, the same thing, trying to mix it up you know as much as possible doing podcasts is a lot easier than it used to be in terms of like uh software you can use and accessibility oh, yeah oh I, I i you know that's the glory of this i mean you know the i use adobe audition i don't know what you're using or your folks use but that thing you could do a hollywood movie you know with all the bells and whistles that this thing's got you're absolutely right it's or you know the other thing just the sheer day-to-day things that you would never think of which is that you could not have done a lot before so my son lives over in Ferndale. You'll be editing over there and he'll call back up and say, you know, talk up 26. You sound a little bit sleepy, you know, you need to redo it. So I just redo it here, you know, and put it on a card and email it to him and he's got it within minutes. You couldn't have done that before. The guy that edits my copy, because I actually bring bring in a copy editor to go through all of this. He's a longtime Detroit newsman, but he's been living in Seward, Nebraska for a long time. So I was able to email him in Seward, Nebraska. You couldn't have done that before. So yes, it's, it's and the whole podcast genre would not have been possible 10, 15, 20 years ago, not like it is now. So no, I think it's a marvelous genre. People seem to be gravitating toward it, I think, in a big way. I don't have all the latest numbers. You know, if you, you ask about the audience, is one of these things where I want to tell a story and I want to tell it well and engagingly and keep keep it interesting. Keep it interesting to me. If I'm interested, even though this thing may be dull, they don't realize it's dull because I don't think it's dull and it doesn't sound dull coming out of the speakers. So yeah, I, I'm just, I'm blown away by the genre. I, I, it's fantastic. Before we wrap up, I do want to chat with you a little bit about how public history uh, is perceived in academia because you're, you're, you're deep in academia. But also I want to, I want to talk to you about what you, th- what do you think public history might even be. You know, see, I'm still mystified by kind of what public history, what that means exactly. I mean, where is, I, I think I mentioned in my, one of my heroes is Robert Caro. He's done these books on LBJ, but he did a magnificent one on Robert Moses, who designed all the freeways in the part in New York. Monumental figure, monumental piece of work, won the Pulitzer Prize. But it's quite clear that this guy turned every, that's his motto, turn every page, turn every page. He went through every last thing he could find. It's the same thing a regular historian does, um, except he wrote it in a really engaging way. Once again, like not like Hunter Thompson, but Caro saying, this is what I found. Here's what it is. And, and 
it's it's marvelous. So is that public history? I don't know. See, I don't know what, you know, the fact that you're writing for a wide audience, does that make it public history? I, and I, I very much quarrel with the idea that because you're writing for a wide audience, you're, you're dumbing it down. I don't think that's the case at all, at all. Now, I realize totally that if you're writing for some of these history, you know, for the American Historical Association's journal, you're writing for a different audience there. They're looking for something different. But, you know, my day-to-day business, I'm not writing normally for the American Historical Association's review, you know. Could I do it? I suppose. But I'm, I'm just more taken with writing the way I would kind of, not the way I've always written, but close. I mean, you know, I, I joined the Free Press when I was 18, you know, and, and and this is like 50 years later. You know, my brain is sort of functions in a certain way. Let's put it this way. It is more geared toward what happened and why, as opposed to the theory behind some of this stuff. But that's just the way my brain operates. You know, some people are clarinet players, some people are trumpet players. That, that's sort of, I'm whatever, I am what I am on this stuff. So in other words, if I started trying to write like an Oxford Don, it would come off badly because that's not who I am. And, and I guess it sort of comes down to just be true to yourself, in my opinion. You know, I mean, there are some people that do like write like Oxford Dons. That's the way their brain is structured, and that's the way they ought to write. If they had tried to write like me, it would not work very well. Be true to yourself, you know, and be honest with yourself. What are you interested in? How do you tell that story? That's why I wanted to do this podcast. I want to ask people who are considered by academia to be public historians and whether or not they agree with that, what they think public history is. Like I, I talked with uh, Jeanette Pierce, and she said, I didn't even hear the term public history until like two years ago. I haven't heard it. That'd be about the same, maybe three or four for me. It was certainly not anything that I heard, you know, as an undergrad, you know, as a grad student there, which would have been the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, I never heard it, but I'm hearing it more and more now. The public intellectual thing, I... That one I still don't get because it's what is an intellectual exactly? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, what is a public intellectual? I don't know. It's a puzzle to me. Before we go, I asked Tim to tell me about a historian or a public historian who he looks up to. Someone he thinks the public should know more about. Here's Tim talking about historian Tom Klug. You know, half the time when you're doing your research, you're sort of looking around for what else other people have done. Uh, You'll have some brilliant idea and you turn out that somebody wrote something in some paper you never heard of five years ago. Tom Clue uh, ended up working with a guy, also a friend of mine named Frank Rashid, and they started collecting this stuff into a bibliography. And they're now on their fourth edition. And they ended up putting together, I don't know how many, but the thing is pretty voluminous. It's a really good survey, any topic that you can think of. Okay, if you want Ford Motor Company, there's a whole bibliography of all the books that are written about Ford Motor Company, about immigration, uh, about race relations, about uh, Native American history. It's all there, right, right there. And, uh, you know, very well organized. And and Klug is just a really smart guy. I mean, uh, he's one of these guys that every once in a while I'll run into a a research-related question. I ended up doing something for the Free Press about about a polio outbreak in the African-American community in 1958, three years after the vaccine became available. Ran across this in a a medical paper, and I'm going, what the hell, a polio outbreak in the African-American? Does anybody know about this? And I called up a couple of people who said, news to me, and I ended up calling Clue. I don't think Clue knew much about it, but that's what Clue's good for. In other words, if Tom doesn't know it, nobody else knows it too. That's that's my feeling, you know, with with Clue.
Thank you for listening to The Chat. Curator Chats is produced by Granville Avenue Productions. It is executive produced, edited, and hosted by myself, Billy Wallwinkle. Production assistance provided by Emily Wallwinkle and Brendan Roney. A special thanks to Tim Kiska for chatting with me today. For more information, visit historywithbilly.com. And now, to leave you with a quote from Hans-Georg Gadamer. History does not belong to us. We belong to it. Until next time, everyone.